I believe that there is a large majority of people out there that deep in their soul, deep in their conscience, understand that there needs to be some moral right and wrong about sexual issues, that there are some boundaries that should not be transgressed, that sexuality is not like eating, it's not like just taking a drink of something, it is dealing with far deeper realities in the human personality. And what we've been learning on Truth Encounter is that the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy presents to us a morality that's based not just upon what we might feel inside, but ultimately upon commands that have been given to us by the architect of all of human life. As we study Deuteronomy chapter 23 today, we're going to be studying some difficult issues, like what about the problem of someone that's been castrated? What about the problem of incest? And we're going to find out that rather than blushing and getting all embarrassed or ignoring issues that are talked about so often today in our modern society in contrast to the former Victorian era, we're going to find out that Deuteronomy and the living God talks to us very carefully and very openly and yet very lovingly, ultimately, about all these different kinds of questions that can be raised about human sexuality. This is Truth Encounter, and our studies in Deuteronomy take us today, as Dave just mentioned, into some strange material. What about the issue of incest? Where and why did God draw boundaries around what constitutes a legitimate marriage relationship and what is not? Why the strong statements about exclusion from God's presence in the Old Testament law? Let's rejoin Dave Wurtson for our study titled, Included or Excluded. No one born of a forbidden marriage, nor any of his descendants, may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. What's the Lord talking about there? Well, some of you might have a, a child that was born illegitimately. In the Old Testament context, it would be very difficult for that to be the interpretation because we've learned already in the book of Deuteronomy that, for example, if a, if a woman uh, got involved in an affair, the Lord made that man pay a dowry to her daddy, and then he had to marry her, and she, he could not divorce her for a lifetime. And that's because the Lord cherished that little one, that little innocent one that was formed in that womb, and he wanted that child to be able to grow up in a home. So you didn't have that kind of illegitimacy. If there was fornication, if there was adultery, there was stoning. So you didn't have that person around. But in the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, there's a whole series of relationships. In fact, if you turn back there to Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 6, there's a whole series of forbidden sexual unions. And again... This is an area that's raised its ugly head in our culture. The church has been very silent about it, and yet it's a very strategic area that's very destructive to the family. And it says in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 6, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations with them. And then the Lord says this, I am the Lord. I'm going to read that again, and I want you to listen real strong. It says, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations, I am the Lord. Incest is the silent sin. Our culture right now in the public sense has made it an open thing. That is good. Because little girls and little boys have been threatened and have been hurt right in the place that biblically 
should be a total place of safety, a total place of protection, a total place of purity. And I want every one of you to understand from a society's perspective and from a, from a family perspective and as individuals, the Lord God of heaven hates incestuous relationships. It's evil. And it's why it's so important that every one of us in the family of God live close to God and obey the word of God. Because I pray some of you, some of you say, well, Dave, that will never, never happen among the people of God. I wish that was true. I wish that it never took place among churches, but it does. Part of the reason that it does is that we've entered into an area where there's no ethics, there's no morality. There's a feeling that you can do whatever sexually is happening inside of you. If you have very strong impulses, if you have very strong passions, you have the right to do whatever you want to do. I want every one of you to know that's a lie from the pit of hell. The Lord is saying that a child that's born of an incestuous relationship, and Leviticus 18 goes on and describes a whole series of relationships that are evil, that are too close. You all know genetically why that's a, that's a destruction. Because the genes are too close. And it raises a whole potentiality for disease. I was raised in the mountains where there's long, long, cold winters. And when it dropped under 30 below, there's not a whole lot to do. And one of the tragedies of some of those mountain people is that I've been in some of those homes where I look upon a front porch and it's very obvious that a string of maybe six or seven kids whose eyes are not exactly right, whose speech isn't exactly right, whose physical development isn't exactly right, it's obvious that there has been a total moving away and an, and an abolishing of the law of the Leviticus. And there's been sexual relationships within those families. And it's produced children that are really harmed. And that's why God wrote what he did in the book of Deuteronomy. There are things, brothers and sisters, in spite of a relativistic age, God's word still says this does not work. And one of the ways that he got that across to the people is he said these people are excluded under my old covenant from being able to be part of the worshiping community. They were excluded. Once again, the moral principle remains. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a man that was living with his stepmother in the family of God, in the Corinthian church. And the church was saying, oh, it's no big deal. Who, you know, we're in grace. We can do whatever we want to do. Paul writes him and says, stop being arrogant. That practice is, is sinful. Not even the unbelieving world in Corinth would, would be involved in that. And Paul calls for the church to take discipline against that individual and to put them outside the community of the gathered people of God. To not let that person have communion. To not let them have fellowship. Why? Because they hated him? No. Because they realized that it was like a disease. One of the things I want to get you across to you about this principle of exclusivity is God tells us that sin, evil, rampant evil, is like an infectious disease. And if it's tolerated, if it's treated lightly, it spreads like a cancer. The Lord says that if you're a loving, moral, ethical, spiritual doctor, then you don't say, well, everything is healthy, everything is fine. 
It's all right if a man wants to castrate himself, if that's his free will, if he thinks he's a woman, then he can go ahead and do that. God says, no, it will destroy him and it will destroy the community of his family and it will destroy what it means to build a nation from families. The scripture says here, incest, if a person wants to, by the way, our society is not quite ready to apply the principle of relativity to the question of incest. But I want you to see the logic of it. Our society says if it feels good, I can do it. I can do whatever I want to do. Then how do you argue against incest? It's because there's a righteous, holy God that did not design it to be like that. And in his Mosaic law, and it's carried into the New Testament, incest, too close a relationships, are evil. And our homes need to be places where there is holiness and purity. And I want every one of you to be in prayer. Oh, I pray that that will never, never, never attack our church family. How Satan uses that to destroy the witness of the people of God. And I want you to see that your daddy in heaven knows all about life. I don't want any of the kids to feel like they can get out there in the university and they can read some evil polluted literature and feel like, well, God never knew anything about that. Yes, he does. He knows every single disjointed, perverted, twisted thing that the evil one can do, and he throws up over it. It's an abomination, is the way he talks in the Old Testament. And he says, I want to deliver you from that. I don't want you to live on the streets of London, where little boys on the streets of London, before they even know which way is up, will be abused by men and will be hurt. And it happens right here in our area. If you don't believe me, just talk to some of our brothers and sisters that work in the police department. If you want to learn about the perversions of what evil does and why the Mosaic Law is still so important in helping us to see the order and the dignity and the beautiful purity that God wants there to be in families. And so he excluded those born of these forbidden marriages. Verses 3 through 6 raise another issue that's very difficult. Look at verse 3. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any descendant may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. I say, Lord, how, why were the Ammonites and the Moabites excluded? Well, he's going to tell us. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. I want you to notice something. That sinfulness in the Old Testament tends to keep reproducing itself in the descendants of different peoples. By the way, speaking of, of incestuous relationships, Moab and Ammon, that are just mentioned right here, according to the Old Testament, Genesis 19, were founded by an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Remember, they thought it was the end of the world. Sodom and Gomorrah had just been destroyed with fire from heaven and a mighty earthquake. And Lot and his daughters fled into a cave. If you want to know, there's some cavemen in the Bible. Lot was one of them with his daughters. And his daughters said, it's the end of the world. And ordinarily, ethics you know, would apply here, but because it's the end of the world, we need to be able to carry on the name of our father. So the oldest daughter and the youngest daughter got together. They went in, they got their father plastered drunk, and then they had relationships with him. And that's where Moab was born. He was first, and then Ammon. That's a very hard thing. But that, all the way through the Old Testament, the Moabites and the Ammonites are the thorn in the flesh of the people of God. By the way, that continues even today. Unsolvable, knotty problems in the ancient Near East, and it's the same old thing again. The children of Abraham versus the children of Lot. By the way, the Koran switches it around. 
The, the Ammonites and the Moabites weren't born of incestuous relationships. And you see this mighty conflict which works itself out even on international relationships. I'm going to say something else about the inclusion of the Ammonites under the grace of God. But right now, I want you to see God's principle of exclusion. And I want you to learn something. He says this, the Ammonites, as this nation, these Ammonites and Moabites developed, the children of Israel were coming out through the wilderness. They needed protection. They needed food. They needed water. There was thousands of people. If you've ever been on a long camp out, you know how precious water is and how much you need water. The Ammonites and the Moabites wouldn't give them food, wouldn't give them water freely. They were like Scrooges that, that abused the people, and God remembered it. You all need to be really careful. You know, every one of you is beginning a tradition. My dad began a tradition in our family. My dad had parents that didn't know Christ as their Savior, as far as he was concerned, in a million years. My, da- my dad's mother would take him to Coney Island on a Sunday, Sunday afternoon and drink like a skunk and smoke like a skunk and tell my dad, as a little kid, just to get lost among the rides of Coney Island. My dad was raised in a family where his memories of family gatherings were political arguments that almost ended in fistfights. My dad's mother completely lorded it over my grandfather. I mean, she was a bulwark. My dad is a lot like his mom, like my grandmother. And Grandma Wurtson ruled the roost. My dad had the leading dance band in New York. My dad was not a believer. And my mom was from a very wealthy family that spoiled her to death. And she smoked like a smokestack all the way through high school. She almost got involved in immoral affairs again and again, only by the grace of God did she not. Some very difficult things happened to her in her childhood before she was adopted by some wealthy parents. My mom was the farthest thing from a born-again believer. So some of you that sit there going, well, you know, David, Mary, you do your thing. Of course you raise your kids like that. But we're different. I want you to know something. My parents were not believers. They weren't raised in Christian families. They came to know Christ. They were born again. One of my dad's buddies in his National Guard unit, playing in the band, gave my dad a tract that he thought I've told you about. They tore up again and again and again. And George Schilling was cussed out. My dad cussed him. My dad screamed at him, tore tracts up in his face. And praise God for dear little George. Little bitty guy, not much bigger than me. And he kept right at me. Man, he's got a tenacity like an old mule. He kept handing out the tracks and he kept telling my dad. And he took my dad to a meeting where hellfire and damnation preacher just preached the lights out. In fact, George thought the message was so bad, he called up my dad the next morning to apologize for taking him to this hellfire and damnation talk. And my dad said, well, George, I got saved. So thanks for taking me. Did it make a difference? You bet. All five. Did it make a difference that my dad made that decision? You bet. My sister is a missionary in Brazil. My brother Don writes Christian music. My brother Ron is a Christian businessman for the glory of God. Did it make a difference? You bet. Every one of all five of those kids had their lives transformed, a whole new tradition. My mom and dad wouldn't have made it for five years without Christ in their life. Like all their other friends, they would have split, and I probably wouldn't even be here because I came a long way after five years. That's what this text is saying. That 
Families tend by their actions to generate traditions that go on and on and on. And I want every one of you parents to take that to heart. And some of you that weren't raised in Christian families, I want to give you a great deal of hope today. You might be like an Ammonite, you know, totally outside the covenant people of God. But in Christ, you become born again. You become new. And you can start a whole new tradition called the people of God tradition. And it will have incredible impact down to the generations if the Lord Jesus doesn't return for us. It's very important. But if there's characteristics of Scrooge and, and holding on to things and not being gracious to people, that passes on a tradition. And God remembers that. And God will deal with that. Something else the Ammonites did. There's a second thing the Ammonites did. It says in verse 4, they did not give bread and water, but it also said they hired Balaam, the son of Beor, from Bethor in Aram Nakarim. That's up there near Euphrates. Don't get all hung up with that. It's just up in modern-day Iraq and Iran. To pronounce a curse on you. Now, what's going on here? I will need to remind you of this story. I just can't take for granted that you already know these stories. This is a, a, one of the most powerful stories in the Old Testament. You all need to read Numbers 22 through 25. It's a very important passage, and I want to let me just tell you the story. These two million strong people have been delivered through Egypt. They've been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, but now they come up and there's camped up in the Transjordan area, just above the Jordan River, in Moab. They're on the plains of Moab. Barak is the king of Moab. He sees several, you know, two million people there, and he realizes these people are going to overwhelm us. And that's why he wouldn't give them provisions. The second thing he said, I'm going to hire a sorcerer. I'm going to hire an occult specialist. You think that's all new? It isn't. I'm going to hire an occult specialist to come way up from Iran and Iraq to come down here and curse the people. So he sends some of his elite representatives. They go up and say, Balaam, you need to come down. Balaam says, man, I can't come. I can't. I w- you can give me your kingdom and I won't come. So he sends another group of representatives. And Balaam says, well, you spend the night. I'll talk to the Lord about it. And maybe I'll go down. Because Balaam is a strange mix. He's, he's kind of a prophet of God and he's kind of an occult sorcerer. So you think all the weird combinations in modern society are new? They're not new. There have been men and women down through the centuries who are kind of into God. And, and if God can use Balaam's ass, that we're going to find out in just a minute, he can use Balaam too. And he can use me and he can use you. So don't think just because sometimes a person has the voice of God, it means everything about them is right. And Balaam is one of these weird, convoluted figures that you never quite know what he stands for. But finally, after this next night, he says, okay, the Lord says you can go. And then you have this story where the angel of the Lord meets him in the way and his donkey tries to protect him, tries to slam up, up against a wall so he won't be killed by the angel of the Lord. The animal is a lot more sensitive to the presence of God than Balaam was. And Balaam's, you know, ready to beat his donkey. He gets off the donkey and hits him and everything else. And finally, the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey, which is a very unusual thing. You think of it, if your animal talked to you, you'd wake up. What cracks me up about the whole story is Balaam talks to his donkey as if it's the most normal thing in the world, that animals talk every day. And the, and the donkey says, man, have I ever done anything like this to you before? Haven't I been your faithful donkey? What do you think's going on here? And then the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel of the Lord. Now, I don't know everything that's going on in that story, but some scientist that tells me, well, that could never happen, it's just a fable. How do you know what God can do and what he can't do? 
You see, there's a part of me that says, oh, man, it's just a really nice, it's like Aesop's fables. I don't know, sometimes I need a donkey to talk to me. (laughs) And at any rate, the text is really, really clear. The angel of the Lord was very real and very threatening and could have taken Balaam's life. And the Lord says to Balaam, you can go, but you can go to this people. And it shows this back and forth motion. Balaam should have just said no from the very beginning, but because he was a little bit back and forth, God says, okay, you can go. And God almost killed him in the process. But God says, you can go, but you can only say what I'm going to say. And you've got one of the funniest stories in all the Old Testament. Balaam gets up, way up in the mountain. Balaam, you know, Barak gets him up there, looks out over all these people, and the Spirit of God comes upon Balaam, and man, he gives one of the most incredible blessings that Israel ever heard. Barak's in there going, man, I paid you big money to curse him. All you do is bless him. So Balaam says, well, we'll try again. Three times he tries. Every time the blessing gets greater. Then he says, okay, we'll try it one fourth time. And then he comes forth with a, with a most profound prophecy. Incredible pet. It talks about the star that comes from Jacob. It, it, it predicts the career of David and how he will conquer the enemies of Israel. It ultimately predicts the ultimate star of Jacob, the son of God. Incredible story. But Numbers 25 begins like this. The daughters of Moab seduced the children of Israel. And the book of Revelation tells us that Balaam instructed Barak. He says, I can't curse them, but I know a way you can destroy the people of God. Use sexual seduction. Use immorality and you can get them. And Satan's been doing that down through the centuries. And what the text is telling us here in the book of Deuteronomy is that because Balaam, it says, they hired Balaam the son of Beor from Bethor and Aram Nakarim to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. The Lord says, I remember what the Ammonites did to you. I remember how they tried to curse you. I remember how Balaam produced a curse through the seduction of the the women of Moab. And God is saying, I remember what was done. And the Ammonites and the Moabites cannot come into the family of God. So there's an exclusive principle. But I want to remind you, in the book of Ruth, just a few chapters over, just a few books over, there's a precious widow lady from the land of Moab that says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you go, I'm going to go. And Ruth, the Moabite, who was forever excluded from the family of God, became the great-grandmother of King David, who became the model and the example and and the prediction of the coming great shepherd of Israel called the Lord Jesus Christ. And another name for the Lord Jesus Christ is the son of David. You see how God works back and forth, exclusive because of sinfulness, and yet how grace can come into an individual's lives, that you can have a whole people that's degenerate, you can have a whole nationality that's far away from God, and yet God can reach into an individual's life and they can be changed. And we've got it all the way through the Bible. Ruth the Moabite, Uriah the Hittite. And on and on we go through the story of the ancient people of Israel. We find that there's exclusion because of sin, but the incredible grace of God can overflow an individual's life and they can be saved, and they can be part, and they can be included in the people of God. One final one, it talks about the Egyptians. It says in verse, um, 
Verse 7, it says, Do not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Do not abhor an Egyptian, because you live as an alien in his country. The third generation of children born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. And here we have another example. The Ammonites and Moabites and their history were not kind to Israel. But remember way back in the story of Genesis, Esau, who founded the Edomites, ultimately befriended Jacob, and God remembered that. And so God says to the children of Israel, they establish their land, that you can have relationships with the Edomites. The Egyptians, when the people were delivered from Egypt, the Egyptians gave them provisions. The Egyptians provided supplies for them. The Lord remembered that. And you see the fairness of the Lord and the, the strong memory of the Lord. And so we go back and forth how these different tendencies apply down through the generations. And how the Lord remembers a history of, of generosity and a history of giving. But he also remembers a history of stealing and abusing and hurt. And what we have here is the Lord counseling his people saying, you need to learn how to discern people. You need to learn not to be naive about the power of evil. And the fact that I've called you to grace doesn't mean that you're naive about, about the infectious power of moral depravity. The fact that you really believe that God can forgive doesn't make you, make you uh, open-minded to all kinds of abusive behavior. In other words, there's a hard strength of a Mosaic covenant relationship that knows what's right and knows what's wrong. And then it's balanced with that individual belief, that reality that you know that a, a group of people that's excluded because of their sin can draw near because of the power of Christ. I want to talk to you about one more thing. The next paragraph is really fascinating. How many of you have ever gone on a, a camp out? One of the things you have to do, you have to take a sleeping bag in your backpack. You need to take ropes if you're going to do some rappelling. You need to take a canteen. That's really, really important. You need to have really good walking shoes. But you know what else you need to take? We used to take, when we went camping, we took, it was, it was a little, it was a shovel that folded up. It was a shovel that you keep in your pack. The uh, pole of it would fold over so you could carry it easily. Why in the world do we have to take that? I want to tell you why. When I went to the land of Israel, I've done that several times. One of the times I went, I was sitting on a bus. And we were right at the union between Jordan and Israel, called the Allenby Bridge. And there was an Israeli soldier standing on our bus with, a, with an automatic weapon, commanding us to stay on. I had to get off. Man, I had the jungle trots. It was the Jordan Montezuma, whatever revenge the Jordan River produced. I mean, I was in a bad thing. And I looked at it, it's really slowly. He says, I have got to get off. He said, no, you don't. He, I said, go ahead and shoot me. And I took off running. And you talk. I wished I hadn't. If ever I wish I had low motile, it was now. Low modal. Really needed it badly. You don't know what it's like to live in the United States of America. What you think is a bad bathroom is heaven on earth. Until you travel in the Middle East. And that's what this text is about. I want to tell you something. This text shows that God wants to invade every single area of your life. Do you know if you're on a camp out, little kids? You wake up in the middle of the night and you guys want to just run outside and, and just relieve yourself. God says, don't you do that. You say, why not? That's what this text is talking about. You know what it says in this text? You can go and read it. It says when the soldiers go out in their camp, that they're to take a little shovel with them. He says, number one, if some guy is too lazy in the middle of the night and he messes up his entire sleeping bag, 
The next morning, he gets kicked out of the camp. Can't stay with everyone else. As the sun begins to go down, they have to give him a good shower, have to wash him all up, get him all cleaned up, and only then can he come back in. You get excluded from your battalion, from your troop, for a whole day. You'll stop messing up. If you think that's unimportant, you need to be a summer camp counselor. Man, my greatest challenge in, in counseling 15, 7, 8-year-olds was to be sure to teach them how not to make a problem in the night. One of my favorite counselors made a bad mistake. He was on the lower bunk. You never sleep on the lower bunk. <laughs> God's concerned about that. You say, what in the world are you talking about this for? God dedicated a whole paragraph to this stuff. If you're one of God's children, you go camping out. You don't just make a mess everywhere. You go where you're supposed to go. In old Israel, they made you carry a little shovel. Let's suppose you're really roughing it in camping, and there's no facilities. You take a little shovel with you, and you cover it up. You think that's not important? You talk to some of the missionaries in tropical climate where they don't do that. You think this isn't important? God cares about every single area of your life. He says, you follow my commands sexually. And oh, will you be protected from so many diseases. I have yet to hear of a culture that self-destructed by praising and honoring and exalting monogamous marriage and purity. In all of history, I've never read any history book that had a major chapter. Culture self-destructs because of monogamous emphasis in marriage. And yet our culture is dying very serious because of a breakdown of God's decrees. Jesus Christ in your life makes you care about hygiene. Brothers and sisters, when you go home today, most of you don't even realize the grace of God in your life. Because almost How many of you housewives care about your house? And how many of you pray your husband would help you? <laughs> husband, I want to tell you something. When Christ comes into a life, when Christ comes into a life, Things don't just get thrown around anymore. Because Christ is the Lord of order. Some of you that have dirty plates all over the kitchen, that's what this text is about. Dirty plates all over your kitchen is not going to be healthy. It's not going to help you give food to your kids that are free from disease. It's hard to wash the dishes. It's hard to get the soap. It's hard to have hot water. But I want to share with you, your Heavenly Daddy cares about that. He sees every one of you. You should all pitch in and do it. But if you're living in a pig pen, God says, that's not the way my people live. You don't just go out and relieve yourself. You don't have dirty bathrooms. You have hygienically clean places. Brothers and sisters, I could not tell you the protection that that was when God told the nation of Israel. That's why I'm teaching the word of God. This was before Louis Pasteur. This was before all the understanding of infectious diseases. This was in a day, do you realize, right in our own nation, right in our own nation, on the Oregon Trail, right near where Mary's mom and dad pastored for many years, they cut a pass called the Mitchell Pass. And as they cut that highway through, every 5, 10, 12 feet, they found a grave. They found more bones. You know why? Because up at Fort Laramie, they threw all their garbage in the river. They went to the bathroom in the river. They, went, they just did everything in the river. 
And the Laramie, this little creek, which I've seen, it's a beautiful little mountain, Wyoming creek. But in the days of the, of, the, of the Oregon Trail, it was a polluted river. And no one knew about cholera. No one knew about the diseases that could, that could multiply rampantly in the river. And that, that water, that the Oregon Trail was right by the Platte River and right by those rivers because they needed water to drink. But the water that they drank killed them. Little babies would get cholera in the morning and be dead by the evening. Grown, strong men would die in just 12 hours. You know why? Because they didn't listen to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says you've got to cover up that stuff. Make it really drive home. Some of you business people, like Bill here as an engineer, a lot of you are wrestling with, with hygiene and, and ecology and all these things. As a people of God, there's a part of me that hates the abuse. I hate the government intervention. I hate some of the crazy things they do. And we need to stand against unfairness and we need to stand against what is, what is not good and what is really not right. But we also need to remember there's another side of it where as the people of God, we need to stand for what creates a clean environment, what is hygienically right, what is safe. For some of you, that could cost you something to maintain that balance. When you look at a bottom line and you, you raise the issue, but is it really, really clean? Is it really safe? It's a very complicated debate, brothers and sisters, and, I, I, and our church family is very much divided, and there's extreme viewpoints. And I want to share with you that I'm against lying. I'm against political use of causes illegitimately. I'm against that stronger than any of you. But I want you as the people of God to realize that God wants to invade every area of your life. I want to close with this. The scripture says that in Christ, that the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Israelites and you and I can all come. Because Jesus said this. Jesus didn't say, well, the Ammonites are excluded. Jesus didn't say, well, the Moabites are excluded. You know what Jesus told us? He said, go and make disciples of every nation. That's a big difference. No longer exclusion. Now it's inclusion. In Acts chapter 10, the Lord God took Peter. He was an exclusive Jew. The Lord dumped a whole sheet full of unclean food right in his lap and said, you kill and eat. And then the Lord brought some unclean Gentiles, people that Peter would not even talk to, people that Peter would have nothing to do with. And the Lord says, these are mine. The Lord made an exclusive Jew go to a Gentile home that he never did. And in that home, he declared the gospel, and the Spirit of God came down upon Cornelius, and he became born again. As we close to the very end of the Bible, look at Revelation, the end of the book, Revelation chapter 22. We'll read one verse. It talks about inclusion and exclusion. Inclusion and exclusion. It says in chapter 22, verse 14, Blessed are those who have their robes, that they may have a right to the tree of life, that they may go outside to the gates into the city. It says, outside of the dogs, those are those that are involved in idolatrous cult, cultic prostitution that Deuteronomy warned against. So they're still excluded if they don't come to Christ. Those who practice the magic arts, they're excluded from the eternal kingdom of God. Those who practice sexual immorality, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. So there is exclusion at the end of time. But it says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride of Christ, that is the church, say come. And let him who hears say come. Whoever is thirsty, 
Let him come and whoever wishes, let him take freely of the gift of the water of life. To be close today, I want you to understand that the principle goes like this. Those who choose to live a life of unbelief, of lying and of immorality and of falsehood are still excluded from the presence of God. But those people are invited to turn away from those things. They're invited to come and drink freely from the water of life. That's the message we have to proclaim to the world. Exclusion from the presence of God because of sin, but inclusion if you'll only turn and allow the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, to cleanse us. Now I want to ask you this. Why did so many unbelievers that I talk to say, well, Dave, Jesus would never want me. Why do I always hear, I could never be good enough? Why did that Sunday morning is one of the most, one of the most exclusive times? Why did the people of God have such a really, really hard time just recognizing their own unity together? We've got exclusivity just among our churches. I go to the Bible church. Oh, no, I go to the Baptist church. Our little Baptist church is much better than your Bible church. Oh, no, no, our Bible church, I want to pray. It's much, much better. What about the fact that Jesus said, I pray that there might be one as the Father in heaven is one. I and the Son are one. You know one of the greatest things you can do this week? Realize that you're included. You're part of the group. Unity together and in the body of Christ, not based upon watering down God's moral standards, the truth, but standing together at the foot of the cross and confessing our need and receiving forgiveness and then going on to the Garden of Gethsemane and receiving Christ's resurrection power to live a new life in Him. The only person who is excluded is the one who refuses to grab the hand of the man who stilled the waters and the one who made the sea. Heterosexual fornicators, adulterers, Transvestites, prostitutes, homosexuals, gossips, slanderers, liars, the proud, and the violent. Jesus' death can pay for all these sins in full, but you have to come just like you are without one plea, but that Christ's blood was shed for you. This concludes our study of Included, Excluded from Deuteronomy chapter 23, and we are thankful for the opportunity to be able to discuss God's Word like this together.